Club 400 podcast is on the air. Another awesome day with my guys, William. What's up, Stu? What's going on? Just waking up here on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning. (laughs) Masters Sunday. It's a big day. And um, just to remind everybody listening out there, Club 400 Radio is timeless radio. You can go back to listen to any of our episodes at any time. If you have someone that you want to refer to us, please get a hold of us at club 400 podcast at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline which is 1-847-857-7323 it's been a while since anyone's rattled the hotline i know i don't think the one's necessary anymore i heard i was reading about that because i I, i've run the phones at a station in elk grove and we just tell people calling with the the 312 number right and you don't need the one anymore i remember when area codes weren't even necessary John just got off a plane from I Florida. Did. I did. And drove through snow to get here. a nice morning. tan. Yeah. I, dude, I even tried to get a tan and I'm barely above like ghost level. Uh, I must tell you guys, tough. as a Cubs fan, two weeks into the season, I am not happy. And no. that's why our guest today is a perfect guest to have on the air because we can go back a little bit. We can go back to the magical times of 2016. What a beaut. On November 2nd or November 3rd, depending on what time zone you were in, because I wasn't actually in the Cleveland time zone. Where it mattered. But we got a guy who's done it all. Like, John, John, the sound man, thinks he's done it all. William thinks he's done it all. I think I've done it all. But our guest today actually has done it all. And uh, he was a politician, basically, who spent 20 years in our state government, uh, he was a member of the Illinois House of Representatives from 1974 to 1980, and then a state senator from 1980 to 1993. He was involved, actually, with getting the, the United Center, as well as a new ballpark for the Chicago White Sox. We won't talk about the, that part. But more importantly, he mediated the compromise back in 1980s between the Chicago Cubs and Lakeview residents on having night games at Wrigley Field. Something we definitely want to talk about. 8888. William, you would do the formal introduction. We have with us the producer of Miracle, Mr. Bill Maravitz. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, guys. I'm really looking forward to this and happy to be here. So, I mean, it's great timing that uh, I believe you could correct me if I'm wrong, but we're here... We'll talk about the play in a little bit, but Miracle actually previews May 8th, and uh, it opens to the public Saturday, May 11th. Is that correct? It opens to the public Friday, May 17th. Okay, May 17th. Gotcha. And but, but, I will, but I will tell you, we're, because the Cubs are out of town on May 17th, I think they're in D.C., we're having a second opening night for the Cubs, just for the Cubs and their organization, and, and tickets are on sale. On Friday, May 24th, that's a day game for the Cubs. So we're, we're having a second blue carpet event for the Cubs on May 24th. That's awesome. And so our listeners know, 
Uh, the schedule for Miracle is Wednesdays at 7.30, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So it starts Wednesday at 7.30 is the first show of the week. Then Thursdays at 2 and 7.30. Fridays at 8. Saturdays at 3 o'clock and 8 o'clock. And Sundays at 3 p.m. Tickets can be purchased at Ticketmaster.com or by calling the box office at 1-312-988-9000. And I want to tell you this right now, William. We definitely are going to set up a group outing for Club 400 to go see this awesome musical that uh, you've done. But first of all, Bill, let's talk about you a little bit and uh, how you became a Cubs fan. Well, I grew up in the north side of Chicago in, in West Rogers Park, and it was very easy for my friends and I to hop on the L and get off at Addison and just walk across the street. And I think, you know, I could be wrong. I think it cost us about a quarter to get into the bleachers. And it was just easy, fantastic, male bonding. Uh, take your shirts off and get a tan and uh, cheer for the Cubbies. So you basically, you're a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan. Grew up in the Wrigleyville area. And uh, you were hanging out with the bleacher bums back in the day. Well, yes, I was hanging out with the bleacher bums, but I didn't grow up in the Wrigleyville area. I grew up in on the north side, further north, uh, in West Rogers Park, which is uh, about as far north in Chicago as you can get. Gotcha. Now, hey, I don't know if you know this, Bill, uh, William, I should say, but Bill was actually here for the Mark Grace event when Mark Grace didn't show up. I actually met Bill because he is your seats right by Dorothy over there on the first baseline. Right. Right behind Dorothy, and so Dorothy was there that night. You were sort of honoring Dorothy as well as you were going to do Mark Grace. And uh, I've got some pictures, which I'll be happy to send you, from the night we uh, we we beat the Dodgers and went to the World Series. Um, for some reason, the TV cameras focused on Dorothy and I, who were hugging each other, and uh, we we got a lot of TV time uh, after we clinched against the Dodgers in Kershaw. Any Jägermeister shots that night? <laughs> no, none that <laughs> night, but I did have some at the man cave. I'll tell you what, that night was awesome. And uh, if you weren't here that night, we had 150 people here to see Mark Grace celebrate the Cubs World Championship. And Mark Grace didn't show up. So uh, we turned it into a tribute to Dorothy, and it was a great night. It was a night I always remember. Mark Grace actually showed up on the Saturday. And, uh, yeah, but that was awesome. I was really happy to have you out. It was a great night. So let's go back to your, uh, you grew up. How'd you get into politics? Oh, well, I, uh, I was practicing law with my family's firm. Uh, they've been lawyers in the city for 50 years and we were at 134 North LaSalle and all of us one day, uh, the, uh, receptionist comes in and says, uh, Bill, you have a phone call. And I said, can you find out who it is? She said, well, I know who it is. I said, well, who is it? She says, it's, it's Mayor Daly. Now, this is Mayor Richard J. Daly. I said, no, you got to be kidding. It can't be Mayor Daly. Oh, yes, it's Mayor Daly. So I get on the phone, and he always called me Will. He said, Will, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing, doing fine, Mr. Mayor. He said, um, do you think you could find time to come over and see me? <laughs> I'm like 26, 27 years old. I said, anytime, Mr. Mayor. He said, how about now? Okay, so I walk across the street. I take the elevator up to the fifth floor. He greets me with a bear hug and says, Will, I need you to do me a favor. Now, just imagine this young kid out of law school and the most powerful mayor in, in the country 
is asking me to do him a favor. I said, Mr. Mayor, anything you want, just name it. I can't believe you want me to do you a favor. He said, there's a particular district on the north side of Chicago. Every time I run somebody, I lose, and I'm tired of losing, and I would, um, I'd like you to run for that seat. I, I was shocked, and I said, Mr. Mayor, I never thought about a career in politics. He said, well, I think you ought to think about it because I know you've got a lot of friends. You come from a good family, and uh, you know how to talk, and uh, I, I think you'd make a great candidate. Well, when the mayor of the city of Chicago asks you as a kid to run for office, you cannot say no and continue to live in that city. Right. So, so I said yes, and I, uh, I presented myself to the committee. I ran. I put together a bunch of friends from high school, college, law school, and thereafter. And uh, we got no endorsements from anybody. I was running against incumbents, and uh, I uh, wound up winning by a landslide. And uh, we had a wonderful campaign experience, and that's how I began my career in politics. So one phone call actually changed, I mean, changed your life. Am I, am I, am I correct saying that? You're 100% correct. It completely changed my life, completely. So Stu talked about some of the things that you were involved in. What, what were some of the highlights from your perspective of your long political career? Well, I think um, the first bill that I, I sponsored, I wrote and I sponsored, was a bill called the Generic Drug Law. And what that was, at, at the time, um, the, the, the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies were in cahoots, and the doctors only prescribed the more expensive brand-name drugs. And if you wanted to get a cheaper drug, you couldn't go to the pharmacist and get a cheaper generic drug. So I drafted this law that said that you could go to your pharmacist and ask your pharmacist to substitute a much less expensive generic equivalent. And, uh, of course, I was opposed by the, by the doctors, the AMA. I was opposed by the pharmaceutical companies. I was opposed by the pharmacists. All the big special interest money was against me. Uh, and the first time the bill came up, I lost. I was a freshman, uh, and I, but I learned, a, lot, I learned a, a, a valuable lesson. And so the next session, I reintroduced the bill, but I went to every TV station, radio station, and newspaper in the state. I got uh, put together senior citizen groups and consumer groups uh, as a coalition. And so they, the people and the media helped send the message out about how advantageous this this new legislation was the people uh, in saving 50% on their prescription drug costs. And so when the bill came up next time for a vote, it passed overwhelmingly, even though all the special interest money was against me. And it was, uh, it, to this day, still one of my uh, most crowning achievements. I'm so happy I did it. I also wrote a bill called the Hate Crimes Law. And I passed the Hate Crimes Law in Illinois that included... Uh, protection for for uh, people who were uh, discriminating and committing uh, assaults and batteries because of uh, uh, race, creed, religion, sexual orientation, those kind of things. And the hate crime law is a very important piece of legislation uh, in Illinois. Um, I was proud to be involved in the, in the, uh, in the Cub Lights issue and help, help get lights in Wrigley Field. Uh, I sponsored all the uh, all the gun legislation in Illinois from 1975 to 1993, so that every piece of reasonable gun control, uh, I I was the sponsor of, of that legislation. Um, 
a lot of education legislation. They sponsored gay rights before it was popular. Um, um, the gay rights law and AIDS confidentiality testing. So I was, um, I took on special interests. I took on the big, uh, big lobbyists, but I felt good doing it. And I worked to put coalitions together and to use the media to help uh, espouse our positions. And going back to, uh, since we are primarily a Cubs uh, podcast for the most part, I would have to say, go back, if we can go back in time and talk about lights in Wrigley Field and um, obstacles and the barriers you had to face uh, with the neighborhood. And you were kind of like the middleman trying to please both sides to get a compromise, correct? That's absolutely correct. Uh, Major League Baseball and the Tribune that owned the Cubs at the time came to me and, and asked if I would help them uh, effectuate a compromise and work with the community because the community, at least uh, a vocal part of the community, uh, was against lights. They had formed, the community had formed an organization called CUBS, Citizens United for Baseball in the Sunshine. They didn't want any night games at Wrigley Field. They didn't want people from the outside coming in and taking their parking spaces or traipsing across their lawn uh, in the middle of the night or late at night. They were against it. And uh, it was not easy, but uh, we worked with them to effectuate a compromise for 18 night games and sticker parking for those who live there and uh, the Cubs to provide uh, uh, certain security requirements around the park to help the neighbors. And uh, I think it's been a win-win for everybody. It's been good for the Cubs. And certainly the property values of the neighbors have increased uh, very substantially. And you did c contribute to a ESPN documentary a few years back. I think you were uh, in the ESPN Let There Be Light podcast. Was that correct? Yes. Yep. And I, I was at that night at the Cubby Bear, and uh, there was a bunch of people from the neighborhood back in the day wearing their CUBS uh, old paraphernalia they used to have. So it was, it was kind of – that was a great night at the Cubby Bear. It was a great night, and, um, and I think it was, it was nice to see the community come together. Of course, there were still people – who are against it no matter what, okay? But the vast majority of the neighborhood felt, you know, it was a good agreement, a good compromise, and I think to this day uh, it's been advantageous to them. So you had quite a, a day on 9-11, as did everybody in the country, but yours had a, a little different twist than everybody else. Tell us about that day. 9-11, uh, I was in Omaha, Nebraska, at the invitation of Warren Buffett who brought a, about 100 to 150 people in from around the country to talk about the state of the nation financially and give us a talk. And uh, I was uh, asleep, um, and I woken up on 9-11. I came in on 9-10 to Omaha, woken up on 9-11 by a friend of mine in New York who said, turn on the television, and I did. And the first building was already down, and I saw the second building come down, and, you know, Obviously, was in shock like everybody else. And what are we supposed to do? I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. Well, the day, Warren plans a golf outing during the day, and we're all supposed to meet at this golf club. So we all go out to this golf club, and Warren says to us, uh, gentlemen and ladies, I don't know what to tell you. I'm rarely speechless, but, you know, you know, all know what's happened. Many of you came in on your own planes. You're not going to be able to get out of here. The skies are closed. So if you want to play golf today, feel free. We're going to the course is yours. 
if you want to go back to the clubhouse and watch what's going on, if you want to get to the phones and talk to your families, whatever you want to do. So we, um, I was with Ernie Banks and a guy by the name of Stedman Graham, uh, who was uh, Oprah Winfrey's fiance, and we played golf. And when Warren came to our foursome, uh, he had a walkie-talkie in his pocket, and over the walkie-talkie we heard, Air Force One has just landed in Omaha, Nebraska. Well, we didn't know if we were in the safest place in the world or the least safe place in the world because there's a bunker in Omaha that they took the president to and uh, took him to the bunker for safety. So we played golf and um, Warren at dinner, we all listened to the president speak and then Warren talked to us about the state of the nation and the finances and financial world and how this might affect it and all that. And then we wanted to go home the next day, but of course there are no planes to go home. Uh, Edmund Graham said that Oprah was going to send her plane, uh, but uh, no plane came. And the next day we waited and Sedman said, uh, I think Oprah's going to send her plane today. And of course no plane came. So, uh, so I, uh, I made a bunch of calls and I got a rent a car and I said to the guys, we're going to, we're going to drive home. Stedman says, no, I'm going to wait for Oprah's plane. And Ernie Banks said, I'm going with you, Billy. So we got in the car together or what would be a six or seven hour drive. And somebody gave us the wrong instructions to make the wrong turn. And I wound up in like Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> and instead of a six, seven hour trip, it was a 14 hour trip. And I think I heard every Ernie Banks story that he ever could possibly have told during that 14 hour trip. Wow. 14 hours with Ernie Banks. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yep. That's something you always remember. I'm sure. The, the Never best, forget it. The One stop for lunch. And that was it. The best bad directions you ever got. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was great. Before we get out of politics, because actually you got out of politics and moved on to other things, but, um, what do you think about the uh, political climate right now in Chicago? And more importantly, uh, with the Cubs stadium renovations, uh, how the Ricketts funded it uh, without any help from the city. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, obviously, I think that, that the Ricketts family and have done very well with what they've done around the park. I mean, the, I think they paid something like 750 or 850 uh, for the team. And I think it's worth over a billion dollars now, maybe even over $2 billion. So I think everything that they've done has pretty much turned to gold. Um, I, I think there's, there's probably some people in the neighborhood who, who don't like what's happened in the neighborhood, but I think most people are happy with the changes that have been made and the community has been consulted. Uh, the alderman uh, hasn't given the Cubs everything they wanted, but I think the alderman, Tom Tunney, has done a terrific job and has given the Cubs a lot of what they wanted. And I think, you know, it's all a compromise. Nobody gets everything they want. And, um, and I think that the, the, the organization, the Cub organization is better off for it. The neighborhood is better off for it. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the, the new development on, uh, on Clark and Addison goes, how the, the stability of the hotel, the Zachary uh, uh, goes. And, uh, and I, I think that the, the bars, the establishments that have been in around Ridleyville for years, I think they're going to continue to do very well. Uh, certainly, at least while the while the season is going. 
Well, as you know, I mean, actually, by the way, I read an article the other day that Cubs were estimated by Forbes to be worth $3.1 billion, which wow. is amazing, you know. Well, I guess it's a pretty good deal for, for, for the Ricketts family good, paying good investment. $750 or $850 million for yeah. it. Right. Yeah, I think that's the, the main thing about Wrigley, Wrigleyville. I, you know, I used to live down in Wrigleyville, and in the winter, that place shut down. I mean, it was quiet. And I think now Wrigleyville will be a destination outside of baseball season. Uh, so I think the, the whole, um, all the bars and all the restaurants in that community are, are going to do better because of that, because it's now going to be a place to, to be at except for just baseball games. But, uh, as far as, um, and what was it? 1990, you decide to hang up, uh, the political, um, your career and go into a, basically a whole, whole, whole different uh, development, which is land development. Correct. Well, 1992, I did. Uh, I, I was approached by uh, one of the top real estate developers in Chicago, a guy named Jerry Wexler, who built a lot of Michigan Avenue and was a big-time developer. And he came to me. He said he was putting together a very big public-private partnership and buying up all these housing portfolios. And he needed somebody to run the company, somebody that he could trust and, and knew how to work with people and knew how to get things done. And he and he wanted me to do that and to leave the Senate. And every 10 years, there's redistricting um, based on the new census. And it was time for redistricting. And there was some conjecture in the paper. Was I going to run again or was I not? Because I'd been there a long time. And so he basically talked me into leaving the Senate and uh, running this company. And so now I'm serving my last year in the Senate. I did not file to run again. And three months later, he gets lymphoma and dies and i am sort of um out on a limb without a job i can't go back to the senate because i didn't file to run he had four daughters and four son-in-law suit to break up the company and get the assets and so i had to remake myself i had to reconfigure myself and i did it by um buying the uh, entire portfolio of the american medical association they owned a lot of land in uh, river north Ohio, Ontario, Grand Avenue, State Street. I bought all that land and took in one partner, and we built 60-story buildings uh, all over uh, River North. And uh, I just the condos and apartments and restaurants and retail and parking, and I just kind of remade myself uh, from being a senator to, uh, to getting uh, involved in real estate development. And uh, now, I mean, I know a lot of foodies know this restaurant real good, but you are, uh, you're a big part of the Carnivale restaurant down there in Chicago, which uh, is a very hard place to get a reservation for. Well, you call me anytime you need a reservation. I'll make sure you get in and get a good table. But, yeah, that's a place I opened about 14 years ago, and it's, it's doing very well. And if you think about that neighborhood, we're basically on Fulton and Halstead. Nothing was there when we opened up 14 years ago, nothing, we were pioneers. And today it's the hottest street in Chicago. It really is a, you know, a, the prices have gone from a hundred, $150 a square foot to $750 a square foot. And it's a huge development, lots of cranes. In fact, I'm doing another project uh, on Fulton and Carroll, just one block west of Google. That's awesome. I mean, what, you know, you've done so many different things. What, what's the, you know, what's the one thing that, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get into Miracle in a minute here, but what's the one thing that, like, you're, you're most proudest of all? You, you know, we, earlier you signed bills, and, 
you know, what, what, what's the thing that you want on your gravestone one day as far as uh, your proudest accomplishment? Because just listening to you is amazing. The way you've transformed yourself in the various different avenues in life is, is amazing. And not anytime soon on that gravestone. Stu usually goes there a little bit too early. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's true. Um, well, I think the thing I'm most proud of, I guess, is my, my time in the, in the legislature uh, and, the, and some of the bills that I passed that will be there forever. I mean, I still get letters every week from, from people who say, thank you for passing the generic drug law. You've saved me hundreds of dollars uh, on my prescription drug costs. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I was at a uh, political function um, this last year, and one of the owners of, of several bars in, uh, in Boys Town came up to me and said, Billy, you know, I may never have told you this, but uh, I came to you back in 1976, 77, and a friend of mine had AIDS and he needed this miracle drug, but he couldn't get it. He couldn't afford it. And I called you and in 48 hours, I had it put on the formulary so that he could get this substituted drug at a reduced price and it saved his life. And that's a story I never knew, but a fellow by the name of Art Johnston, uh, who owns a lot of bars in, in, in uh, Boys Town, uh, told me this story. And um, it's the kind of thing that, you know, touches you, that you were able to positively affect people's lives by what you did. And the hate crimes law, the, the gay rights stuff, stuff that, you know, um, maybe the average guy doesn't know about. And I was always fighting the special interests, but it. It made me feel good to, to get something done and make a positive effect uh, from my time in the legislature in the Senate. Do you miss it at all at this point? I just ran for my third term on the school board. Not comparable. But the one thing that is the same is it's it's a little bit addicting to know that you're helping other people and you know in such a big way and can really change lives doing that. So do, do you miss it or... Well, I'll tell you, I, I kept my, my fingers in it because up until last year, so ever since I left the, the, le- the legislature, I, have, I was the elected state central committeeman for the 9th Congressional District. Every congressional district in the country has a Democratic committeeman and a Republican committeeman, and I was the Democratic state central committeeman for the 9th Congressional District, which Jan Schakowsky is the congressperson for. Um, so I, was, I kept my fingers in it. I was very involved in in government and politics. I was the vice chairman of the Democratic Party of Illinois. Um, but I, I gave that up last year because I knew I was doing this musical and it was going to take all of my time and I wouldn't have time to run again and, and give time to the office that, that it really needed. So let's go back to the magical 2016 Game 7. Where were you at when the Game 7 took place? And tell me about your feelings and emotions that day. Well, at Game 7, I was watching the game with uh, my best friend, Arnie Granite, who uh, started uh, Jam Productions. To uh, He produces a lot of the con- con- concerts in this city. And he and I are close friends, and we watched the game together that night. And, of course, we were winning, and we were winning. And when Rajay Davis hit that game-tying home run, <laughs> we threw things, we screamed, we swore, we said... <laughs> I knew it was too good to be true. I knew something was going to happen. I can't believe this is happening again. All of those things that probably every Cub fan across the country yelled and screamed 
to whoever they were watching the game with. But we hung in there. We stuck with it. And uh, we uh, celebrated together after the rain delay and after uh, uh, the big hits uh, to win the game. Where were you at? Where were you at again? I was at uh, Arnie Granite's house. Okay, gotcha. He lives at 600 North Lakeshore Drive. And we were just the two of us watching the game together. We ordered dinner in. We had dinner in front of the TV and uh, and celebrated together. Something uh, that, I mean, everybody is going to know what they were doing the night they won it all. And uh, I always like to ask that question. And that obviously goes into why we brought you on today. Uh, you're doing something really special. I mean, it had to be done, and I'm glad you're the guy to bring it to Chicago, to the fans of Chicago, to the fans of the the best fans. That's why we're doing this podcast. The best fans and all of sport, the Chicago Cup fans. This is a musical about the fans. So tell us about when you came up with this idea and, you know, pretty much the timeline of, like, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring this to Chicago. Well, believe it or not, first of all, the name of the – the show is called Miracle, and under that it says 108 years in the making. Okay, and so that's what this is. It was 108 years in the making. I came up with this idea in February of 2016, before the team even reported to spring training. And I was working on another show called The Chicago Story from Daily to Daily about everything that happened in, the, in Chicago from Richard J. to Richard M., Everything in between, not just government or politics, but the, the Michael Jordan dynasty, the Bears Super Bowl, uh, all that stuff. But it, it never came together. The music and the, and the words and the book, the script never came together. So when, when I told everybody that I think we've missed our window of opportunity, that phrase window of opportunity kept repeating in my head. And I, I said, you know what? I've got another idea. We're going to do a show about the 2016 Chicago Cubs season. As seen through the eyes of a typical working-class family in Chicago. Highs and lows, ups and downs, overcoming adversity, losing faith and regaining faith. And I have no idea how this season is going to turn out, but I do think, as a baseball fan myself, that the Cubs have as good a team as anybody in baseball and a good a, as good a chance of winning. So let's follow this season and follow it through the eyes of generational Cub fans. And, and that's... That's how the show, that's where the seed was. And that's, that's the seed that we've been watering for the last three years and is now ready uh, to, to, to blossom, to bloom. Uh, it went through a lot of different scripts. It went through a lot of different um, composers and lyricists. But I think we have a team now that's a very good team that's put together something that the fans will like. And it's not just a show about the Cubs. It's about a family. It's about a typical family with all the kind of problems that all of us have in our daily lives. And we, we, we get to know this family. Hopefully we get to care about this family uh, and worry about this family and root for this family as the family uh, goes through the season uh, of 2016. Most of it is, is, is an up season, obviously. We went through a losing streak before the All-Star game. And, you know, but everything is in there. And there's a tribute not only to the 2016 Chicago Cubs, but to some of the great icons in Cub history, the Ernie Bankses, the Ryan Sandbergs. And there's a, there's a very 
moving song about the announcers that have been the voices of our youth. The Harry Carries, the Jack Brickhouses, the Ron Santos, the, uh, the Jack Gwindlins, the uh, Burt Wilsons, the Vince Lloyds, the Lou Boudreaux. There's a tribute to them in there that I think will be very moving for Cub fans. So from uh, politics to real estate to a musical, how challenging was this? I mean, you, hey, I'm just going to do a musical about the 2016 Chicago Cubs. And you know, let's face it, you didn't have a background in it. What are some of the obstacles? And obviously you got the Cubs permission to, to, to do this, correct? Yes, I did. I, I went to Tom Ricketts with the idea. He liked the idea and he told me to talk to somebody, Mike Lafrano from the Cubs. And they've been a hundred percent cooperative in, in giving us the use of the highlights during the season parade footage that we're going to use. Uh, and, uh, I, I can't thank them enough for, for being helpful in, in putting this together. Listen, you're right. This wasn't my business. I've never done this before. Uh, politics, real estate, restaurants, that was what I had done. And to take this challenge on was, um, you know, a lot of people told me along the way, it can't be done. It can't be done in this short a time. And it just, it, you need more experience. I think that the key was putting together the right creative team. Um, uh, believing in what I was doing all along when other people said it couldn't be done, uh, getting the right, not only the right composer and lyricist and director and, and book writer, uh, but the, the right uh, scenic designer and the right, the right cast, uh, getting the right cast that I think people will like. And I should mention that the book writer of this is a friend of mine named Jason Brett, who produced a, a movie called About Last Night. The composer and lyricist is a, a, a genius named Michael Mahler, and he, he's just fantastic. He's written 16 or 18 songs that I think people are going to absolutely love. And the director is the head of, of theater at the DePaul. His name is Damon Kiley. Uh, and I think they've done a great job together as a creative team. We've all worked together. Obviously, just like any venture, there are bumps in the roads. There are potholes in the roads. Um, but, you know, as I've said to the team, every time we're together, we all have one goal. We want this to be a, a wonderful experience for the audience. We want people to enjoy the show, walk out smiling, want to tell their friends about it. We obviously would like the critics to enjoy it. And that's our goal. And how we get there, remember, we are a team. And we're going to have disagreements. But in the end, we all want the same end game. Now, I think that that's what makes this so great, and I think you're going to have a very successful uh, showing. And you're quoted saying that the, the Chicago Cubs have had a memorable impact on millions, not only Chicagoans, but people around the world. Uh, uh, you said that, and you also said that the story is more than just baseball. It is about the intrinsic value of believing and how having a little faith can take you somewhere where you ever imagine. That's almost biblical, man. That's awesome. For the Cubs, it was finally winning the series after 108 years. Uh, but for the fans, it, it was much more. With this musical, we celebrate the highs and lows of life directly parallel with the Cubs winning the World Series and how believing in a miracle, I love how you keep using miracle, your name dropping, it's great, can get you further than you ever imagined. Now, you, you literally described the writing of this as just believing that something amazing was happening and was going to happen at the very end of it. You started in February without even 
without any merit and everyone doubting that the Cubs were going to win it all. Now, what kind of when you took that risk, what made you believe it was valuable? Well, you know, it was just something we all have our, our beliefs. We all have our bucket lists. Uh, we all have our creative things that come in your mind. And it was just figuring out how to make this work. And listen, I was going to do this. If the Cubs didn't win the world series, we would still have a show about the 2016 team uh, as seen through this family, but it would have a different ending. It would be a disappointing ending to the family. And uh, when, when they when they wound up winning the World Series, it made it all that much better, obviously. Oh yeah. For 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 the story, for the family, and for the fans. And uh, I just I just kept thinking, you know, if 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 you believe and you stick to what you believe, and you're tenacious, and I am, I am pretty tenacious. I was in my political career, in in. Um, in drafting legislation and in fighting for legislation. I was in getting buildings built in, in the River North area. I was in opening restaurants and I've been tenacious in, in getting this and getting this play up and ready for opening next month. So whether it was going to be a Greek tragedy or something like Rudy, you were doing it. Absolutely. Going to do it. That's fantastic. What kind of impact, if any, did the show from 1977 that was out uh, bleacher bums, who I believe Joe Montana was in um, or produced, uh, uh, he had some role in that. Did that have any impact on your thought process as far as taking a baseball story to a musical? Well, the only it didn't really have any impact. The only thing I said when people asked me that is I wanted our show to go much deeper. I want it to be a much deeper show of, about character development and uh, a family's highs and lows. And I wanted it to be a musical and have new songs. And as I told Michael Mahler, who composed the songs, I said, Michael, I'm, I love musicals, but I'm pretty tough on musicals. If I can't walk out of the theater singing or humming a tune or two, then I don't feel it was successful. And I want you to know that. And I want, I'd like the songs to be melodic. And Michael has given me exactly what I asked for. He's given me 16, 18 Beautiful songs with great melodies that I think a lot of people will sing and hum when they're leaving the theater and maybe even for, for weeks afterwards. I'll tell you what, uh, throughout this process, which is, has been a process, um, Bill has shot, shot me over a few different songs that I've heard. And I think that what we, we you know, last, our last episode uh, we had was with Lou and John who, who did the statues. But the same thing, this re- reason why I bring you on is that this this play this musical that's coming out um, is is created from a Cub fan who's gone through the be- the the bad times the low times and 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 I think that's the important thing. This is not like some corporate thing. This is this is from a Cubs fan. This is this is kind of a I, in my opinion I think this is like a, a, a is a gift that you're giving all of us. And I'm I'm really looking forward to going to see it. And like I said, I've heard two or three songs and they are amazing and. Uh, Let's talk a little bit uh, about the play itself. Uh, you did mention it's about a family. I believe the family is uh, the the Delaney, Delaney family. Is that correct? The Delaney family. Yeah, Delaney they, family. They own a bar. They own a bar that's been in the family for a generation, a couple of generations. They own a bar in Wrigleyville, and um, it's kind of a neighborhood bar. Uh, neighborhood people come and stop in and 
you know, have a beer with the owner and talk about their troubles and what's going on in their life. Um, it, and so that's, that's what, that's what it's about. And the, the name of the bar is Maggie's named after the matriarch of the family who, uh, had died recently. Shout, um, shout but, out to Maggie's. The, yeah. Shout out to Maggie's. Get down there the, and the stop four, by. <laughs> the four main characters are Maggie's husband, Pops, uh, their son, Charlie, who, who is now running the bar and is the bartender much of the time, uh, Charlie's wife, Sophia, and their, their youngster, who originally was a, a little boy, but is as a little girl. And she's 11 years old, and she's a Cub fanatic. Uh, when, when Kyle Schwarber got hurt the third game, um, she was so upset. She said, I'm putting on my Schwarber jersey, and I'm not taking it off until Schwarber comes back. And throughout the entire show, she wears that Schwarber jersey to school and everything because um, she believes she believes Kyle's coming back, and she loved Kyle, and uh, she, she wanted to uh, to make that a memorable time in her life. So, uh, that, and then we have four other characters of people in the neighborhood, but those are the four main characters. And I, and I would, if you want to know one thing about the show, and the the the, the songs are magnificent. Do you mind if I tell you one story about one song? Love to hear it. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story about a song called The Voice Above the Crowd. I'm going to take you back to a time when Harry Carey died, and they put up a statue to Harry Carey. And three months later, Jack Brickhouse died, uh, who had been, of course, announcing in Chicago for much longer than Harry. Uh, And... uh, I got a call from Jack Brickhouse's wife, Pat, and she was crying. And she said, Billy, you have to help me. Uh, I went to the Cubs and asked them to do a statue for, for Jack, but they wouldn't. And, and I, I really need to get a statue for Jack. Please help me. So I called a couple of friends of mine. One was Richard Melman. Rich uh, owns Let Us Entertain You. And another friend of mine named Jim Rittenberg, who started a fabulous nightclub called Faces, started Ditka's. Jukebox Saturday Night Rodeo and as Mother Hubbard's on on Hubbard Street. I called them and I said, "Guys, we have to help get a Jack Brickhouse statue." And so we put it together a little committee. We found out the best sculptors in the country. We got their bids and their their presentations. We picked one. We raised a little money, and the statue was created. Uh, I used uh, some friendships that I had at City Hall to get it placed on Michigan Avenue, right across of the Wrigley Building in front of the Ekru Building and Tribune Tower. And it's still there today. And I think it's the only statue on Michigan Avenue. It's a statue of Jack Brickhouse. And when we were having the unveiling, I asked a friend of mine, Julian Frazen, to write me a song for the unveiling of Jack's statue. So it came, t- it came day for the unveiling. And Many in the Cub organization were there, Ron Sano, Billy Williams, Ernie Banks, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf was there, the mayor of the city of Chicago. And I asked a friend of mine whose name was Jimmy Damon to sing this song that was written by Julian Fraser. And the song was The Voice Above the Crowd. And it was a very, very moving song to Jack Brickhouse, who was the voice of our youth and it, it, it got people's hair standing up. They got goosebumps because it was a tribute to the voice above the crowd who was now a voice above the clouds who had died. 
And so, and now fast forward, guys, to uh, 2003 of the All-Star Game is at Comiskey Park in, on the south side. And I had developed a, a little relationship with Bud Selig because of the work I did to get the White Sox their new stadium and the Cubs get their lights. So I developed a relationship with Bud and I said, Bud, you're going to have a all-star game here at, at Sox Park. Every year you do a tribute to somebody in, in baseball. You did one to the great stars of the Negro Leagues. One year you did a tribute and you asked the fans to vote on the best player at each position. And you would announce it during the all-star game. Why don't you do a tribute to the great voices above the crowd that exist in every major league city in America? The, the Vin Scully, the Bell Allens, the Red Barbers, the Jack Bucks, the Harry Careys, the, the Ernie Harwells. Uh, why don't you do a tribute to those? And, um, and I've got a song that I could have somebody come on the field and sing during the tribute. And so... Selig asked me, how would, how would you do it? And I said, I would put their picture up on the scoreboard. I'd play one of the most iconic calls, and I would have this song sung by a friend of mine. He said, send me the song. So I send him this song, The Voice Above the Crowd, and he calls me back and said, Billy, this is beautiful. This song is perfect. Who can you get to sing it? And I said, I have a friend of mine by the name of Dennis Young, who was the lead singer from a group called Sticks, And he could come on on the field and sing this song as you do this tribute to the voices above the crowd. And so back in 2003 on national TV in front of millions and millions of people across the country, Dennis DeYoung came on the field and sang the voice above the crowd as major league baseball did a tribute to the great announcers across the country. This song is going to be in our show and I'll tell you how it's in our show. Top the, the, patriarch of the family um it's a big cub fan and he walks up those cub bleacher ramps every day and he walks with a limp and one day his 11 year old granddaughter asks him uh, gramps why do you limp you've never told me why you limp and he says danny that's her name danny i was in the war in in the 70s and i was uh in a foxhole and I got shot up pretty bad, and they took me to an army hospital. They didn't know if they could save my leg. And the only thing that kept me going was this little transistor radio next to my bed where I could listen on Armed Forces radio to the baseball games back home. And then he sings this song, The Voice Above the Crowd. And as he sings this song, The Voice Above the Crowd, pictures of Harry Carey, Ron Sano, Vince Lloyd, Lou Boudreaux, Jack Brickhouse, uh, they are projected on screens above the stage. And I think as he sings this song, it will bring goosebumps and great emotion to Cub fans in the audience who have listened and watched these great announcers that have been a, a, a major part of our lives. Guys, tickets are available now. Ticketmaster.com, Royal George Theater in Chicago. I can't wait. I, I know. I got goosebumps just oh, sitting here. Yeah, Seriously, I know. I'm it's going to be awesome. I have no doubt. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, you've been through a lot in your life. And what do you, how, you know, you've seen the progression of the show. I'm sure you, you're, you go to the uh, rehearsals and stuff. Uh, how do you think it's coming along? Are you, I mean, are you, I, mean I, I, I want to follow up with the question is, 
the first night it's shown to the public, you're going to be like one of those movie stars who walks into his own movie, sitting in the back row, waiting to see how the audience reacts. Uh, are you, I mean, you're probably going to be full of nerves and everything. Explain to me what, what you've been thinking about in your head. Well, in my head, I've been thinking about, you know, is, is there any way we could make the show better? Uh, how will the audience react? Uh, how would I, as a typical audience member, react? And we have made lots of changes in this show, um, lots of improvements in the show. I think it's where we want it now. We are just rehearsing it. We started rehearsals April 1st, and I'm going to rehearsal later today as we do a, a run-through of the show. Um, I'm very excited about it. Of course, I'm going to be nervous as hell. Um, I, I'm going to watch the audience and their reaction. Uh, I'm going to hope that we, if there's anything that's, that goes wrong during the previews, that we correct it before the opening night on May 17th when the critics come and the press come. Um, but I'm very hopeful. I, again, I just want the audience to leave the theater smiling and happy and maybe singing a song or two and wanting to tell their friends this is something they have to see. I mean, yes, it's it started from a seed and it's blossomed into what I hope will be an enjoyable couple hours for everyone in Chicago, whether you're a baseball fan or not. This is the kind of show that you can bring the family and truly enjoy. Well, and that brings up a, a great point. For people who aren't typically musical or theater uh they go to theater things they'll want to see this anyway there's a whole new audience of people that don't typically uh enjoy theater that will get to see something that they're definitely going to be interested in i hope that's i hope that's the case from from your mouth to god's ears yeah. <laughs> well that's the thing you got yeah you mean cub fans are you know cub you know I, this is going to be i think a destination like you're gonna not only going to come to see wrigley field but you're going to go hit miracle you know right and uh i i'm, I'm really just happy for you i and i know it's going to be a success i feel it because i know your heart's been it the entire time i've been talking to you about it for over you know, maybe even two years now and uh, i know you ha you know anybody who has passion like you do and puts the passion in the project it's and you know let's face it it's a, it is a, it, the whole situation is a miracle 108 years who you know that's i mean it's unbelievable to this day I, I still can't believe it took 108 years for the cubbies to win it all and um yeah that's I, part of the miracle that that's kind of part of the miracle that that the fans through generations have stayed with this team even though it didn't win for 108 years that's kind of part of the miracle um I, I think that when people come to visit the city of Chicago from all over the Midwest and all over the country, uh, they'll, they'll ask their concierges, what, what is there to do uh, maybe after dinner or instead of just a meal, what, what can you recommend to, to see in the city? And I'm hoping that the concierges will tell people there's a great show at the Royal George Theater on Halstead that I think you'll love, whether you love the Cubs or not, whether you love baseball or not. It's a great show with wonderful music. And it's good for the whole family, and I think you'll enjoy it. And that's kind of what I what I hope that it's just another thing that people come to our great city. It's another thing for them to do in the evening. Yeah, and then you you actually get hit you the Cubs give you parade footage and also you know, official footage from the Cubs, which is going to just add to it and make it even more special. You know that being that they get kind of you know said we're we're behind you, Bill, on this. It's only going to make the, the the project even better. I sure hope so, and I really thank you for the opportunity to, to come talk to you guys and, 
and uh, just exchange some uh, some thoughts about the, about the show and and how we got there. Yeah, and you are you guys uh, obviously you're gonna have uh, sell T-shirts and is there gonna be a CD that follows uh, with the songs? There will be a CD. There definitely will be a CD with the uh, the uh, the songs from the show. I saw your logo. I'm definitely buying a shirt when I go to the theater. But yeah, you're right. I'm, I plan on bringing my entire family. And when I say that, I plan on bringing you know my uh, Eric and his kids. And- Stu has 452 people in his family, <laughs> so I don't know how many seats there are in the theater, but. But no, I, I'm looking forward to it because, like you say, it's not just about the Cubs winning, um, you know, the World Series, but it's there's some family dynamics involved here, and and it just tells a story whose the, the 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 family shares one thing in common, and that they're all Cub fans, and they might have their own individual issues, but at the end of the day, the Cubs are what brings the family together, you know, and that's what we talk about here on the Club for Heart podcast. And that's what unites people, and that's part of our, our fundraising here too. Is that Cub fans helping Cub fans? Exactly. So with the hashtag. <laughs> well, we've got a song called Hashtag the W. That's right. <laughs> so we're looking forward to seeing you at the show. Uh, like I said, we're going to get a big group out there and support you as much as possible and uh, promote the show as much as possible. I I can't wait for it. Um, I'm going to pick out a, a day soon, and we're going to uh, put together an events page on Facebook. We'd love to have you guys, our listeners, join us, and we'll uh, go to the show and then maybe meet it somewhere close for a couple cocktails afterwards. But thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, hey, it's a miracle, the bottom line. Thanks so much, and I'm looking forward to having a 400 night at the theater. All right. All uh, uh, yep, exactly. Absolutely. So uh, best of luck to you. We'll see you at Wrigley Field. Right by Dorothy. Go say hi to Bill over there. And uh, buy, the, buy Bill a beer, man. He's been working his butt off, I mean, for this <laughs> musical. I mean, I don't know how you've done it, to be honest with you. But, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on, you guys. www.ticketmaster.com for tickets. Royal George Theater. Buy them now. Thanks for listening, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Uh, MiracleTheMusical.com. All right. Awesome. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. By the shores of old Lake Michigan, where the hawk wind blows so cold, an old cub fan lay dying in his midnight hour, the toll. Round his bed, his friends had all gathered. They knew his time was short. On his head they put this bright blue cap From his all-time favorite sport Told him it's late, it's getting dark in here And I know it's time to go But before I leave the lineup Boys, there's just one thing that I'd like to know Do they still play the blues in Chicago? When baseball season rolls around When the snow melts away Do the cubbies still play In their ivy-covered burial ground? When I was a boy, they were my pride and joy But now they only bring fatigue To the home of the brave The land of the free And the doormat of the National League his friends, you know the law of averages says anything will happen that can. That's what it says. 
But the last time the Cubs won a National League pennant was the year we dropped the bomb on Japan. The Cubs made me a criminal, sent me down a wayward path. They stole my youth from me, that's the truth. I'd forsake my teachers to go sit in the bleachers in flagrant truancy. And then one thing led to another. And soon I discovered alcohol, gambling, dope, football, hockey, lacrosse, tennis. But what do you expect when you raise up a young boy's hopes and then just crush them like so many paper beer cups? Year after year after year. After year after year after year after year after year. Till those hopes are just so much popcorn for the pigeons beneath the L tracks to eat. He said, you know, I'll never see Wrigley Field anymore before my eternal rest. So if you have your pencils and your scorecards ready, I'll read you my last request. He said, give me a doubleheader funeral in Wrigley Field on some sunny weekend day. No lights. Have the organ play the national anthem. And then a little na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. Make six bullpen pitchers carry my coffin and six groundskeepers clear my path. Have the umpires bark me out at every base all their holy wrath. It's a beautiful day for a funeral. Hey, Ernie, let's play too. Somebody go get Jack Brickhouse to come back and conduct just one more interview. Have the Cubbies run right out into the middle of the field. Have Keith Moreland drop a routine fly. Give everybody two bags of peanuts and a frosty malt, and I'll be ready to die. Build a big fire on home plate out of your Louisville Slugger baseball bats and toss my coffin in. Let my ashes blow in a beautiful snow from the prevailing 30 mile an hour southwest wind. And when my last remains go flying over the left field wall, we'll bid the bleacher bums adieu. I will come to my final resting place out on Waveland Avenue. The dying man's friends told him to cut it out. They said, stop it, that's an awful shame. He whispered, don't cry, we'll meet by and by near the heavenly hall of fame. He said, I've got season's tickets to watch the angels now. So that's just what I'm gonna do said, but you, the living, you're stuck here with the Cubs. So it's me that feels sorry for you. And he said, oh, play, play that Lonesome Losers tune. That's the one I like the best. Closed his eyes and slipped away. Well, Scotty, it was the dying Cub fans' last request. So here it is. Do they still play the blues in Chicago when baseball season rolls? Around. When the snow melts away, do the cubbies still play in there?